0: nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared to study God's Word. Scripture teaches us that it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one who enables us To understand the Word of God and also to store it in our souls. The ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives in terms of spiritual growth production is referred to as sanctification ministry. When we're out of fellowship, when we sin, when we break fellowship with God, then that ministry is shut down. The other ministries of God the Holy Spirit continue, but we need to confess our sins and which time God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that point, our fellowship is restored. The ministry of God the Holy Spirit in terms of producing spiritual growth is recovered, and we uh, resume our forward uh, momentum in the spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word is our only sure and certain guide to life, for in your word you have revealed your thoughts to us. You have given us that framework which we need in order to understand and interpret the experiences of life and all of the things that occur. Your word not only addresses our relationship with you and how to have a relationship with you based on the completed work of Christ on the cross, but it gives us an understanding of all of your creation for you have created all things and you have addressed these things in your word now fathers we examine this tremendous chapter in revelation chapter 5 where we are in the in your very throne room as we get a glimpse of that future event when our lord jesus christ steps forward to assume the scroll to open it and to assume his rulership over planet earth Father, we pray that we might understand these things and gain a greater appreciation for the uh, scope of your grace and your plan, that we may have our thinking more consistently oriented to it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. So I've pointed out several times as we continue our study of Revelation 4 and 5, it is somewhat unfortunate that a chapter break occurs here because this is all one, one, uh, one act, as it were, in the drama of the future events that are known in, in, in uh, theology as either the Great Tribulation or biblically as Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble or <clears throat> the time of the end end times. When the Lord Jesus Christ will eventually come, it's a time when there is tremendous judgment upon the planet in view of his return. And the scene begins in heaven as we go through this section of Revelation from chapter 4 through chapter 19 when the Lord finally does return to planet earth with the church his bride to assume his uh, rulership over the planet, we have a shift of scenes as we go through this, this, uh, this time period, or we might say shift of acts. You know, we'll have our first act and we're in heaven. And then the next act in chapters 6 and 7 focuses our attention back upon the earth and then we'll shift back to heaven. And so the, the focal point of the camera, as it were, takes us from events in heaven to events on earth. And I think it is fitting that it begins in heaven because what takes place during the tribulation, is the final judgment of God upon sin and evil in terms of of human history prior to the establishment of Jesus' reign of righteousness at the second coming. And so we begin in heaven because judgment begins from the throne of God in heaven. Chapter 4 gives us the scene in heaven, describes the Uh, throne room of God, the supreme court of heaven, as it were, surrounded by uh, several groups of people. You have the four living beings, you have the uh, angels, and you have the 24 elders, who as we've seen, are representatives from the uh, resurrected, raptured, and rewarded church age believers. And as they are before the throne of God, they are singing praise to God and worshiping him because he is the creator. That is the foundation for why we worship God is because he is our creator. He created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. The last verse of chapter 4 reads, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Because God is the creator of all things, God is the one who establishes, as it were, the rules on how, why and how all things operate. We saw last time as we began in verse 1 that there is a significant uh, item in, mentioned in verse 1 called a scroll. We saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. The existence of this scroll is directly related to God as our creator. We studied this last time and it's important to go back through this again just to make sure we get this locked into our thinking because this scroll is really the the scroll of Christ's Title D to the planet. This scroll is sealed with seven seals, and those seven seals represent the uh, some 20 judgments in the Book of Revelation. The seven sealed ju- or 19 judgments, rather. So I'm not good at math. The seven uh, sealed judgments. The seventh sealed judgment contains seven. Uh, Trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. And that's your basic outline of this section of Revelation. If you can just think your way through uh, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments, you have the lion's share of Revelation under control because that's the progress of the book. And it is the opening of these seals that each judgment that brings about the final event of our Lord Jesus Christ returning to the earth in Revelation 19 with this title deed to assume his position as the king of the planet. Now, to understand that, you have to go back to the original creation in Genesis chapter 1. I pointed this out last time, that the Bible must be taken as a unified whole. And at the very beginning, God created man in his image and in his likeness. And man was to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He was the ruler of the planet, the king of the planet, as God's representative. But when Adam sinned, he gave up his rightful ownership of the planet. And as it were, it was taken over and usurped by Satan who becomes the new ruler of the planet? Uh, passages such as second corinthians four four refer to Satan as the god of this age john twelve thirty one he's called the ruler of this world ephesians two two he is the prince of the power of the air he is the present ruler of the kingdoms of man, and we that immediately brings into our mind if you've gone through the book of Daniel before. The great statue that appeared in the dream to Nebuchadnezzar that traces the history of the kingdoms of man from Babylon to Media Persia to Greece and to Rome and then to the future revived Roman Empire. This image is repeated again in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter seven in other, uh, in another manifestation as various beasts because ultimately the character of of the kingdom of man is beastly because man in sin and in rebellion to God perverts his original purpose as ruler of the planet and it operates under the tyranny and dominion of, of Satan. So God is the, seen as the original owner of the planet and man is, as it were, uh, given a delegated responsibility to rule the planet. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. He is going to complete that victory over Satan, which he uh, began on the cross. Actually, he completed, completes the victory in one sense on the cross because at that point Satan is defeated. But the full application of that defeat does not occur until the tribulation period. And as we will see as we go through uh, the book of uh, Revelation, we will see that Satan is cast out of heaven during the tribulation period, about halfway through. About a third of the uh, angels that fell with him, the demons, are also cast out of heaven at that point. And the uh, characterization of things on the planet will be a little different because unlike today when uh, demons and angels are invisible, they will be visible and they will be taking an active role in what goes on the planet at that particular at that particular time now <clears throat> the title deed is given to uh, the Lord it is part of God's original uh, delegation of rulership to the planet and it's the word scroll there it reflects the uh, Greek word biblion and this scroll which is sealed then with uh, seven seals is Uh, indicate some sort of legal document. In the the, uh, ancient world, in the Roman Empire, it was a standard operating procedure to take legal documents, contracts, title deeds, real estate contracts, things of this nature, and they would be rolled up as a scroll and they would be sealed with seven seals. The writing on the inside of the scroll would indicate the terms of the contract or covenant, and the writing on the outside would give a summary of the covenant. The details on the inside would be private for those who had a special uh, uh, <clears throat> a special part or role in uh, in the contract, and the external writing would be those who were outside. So the in- inside of the covenant would is the eschatology prophecy of Scripture that is reveal to us so that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can understand what is going to take place. The writing on the outside simply summarizes it. Unbelievers only have a vague understanding of what they hear about what will take place in, in the future. What we saw last time also was that all of the earth is cursed. Not only does the sin of Adam bring a curse on the human race in terms of its separation from God spiritually in fallen condition so that the penalty for sin must be paid for by Christ on the cross, but that sin had a resounding impact on all of God's creation. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 23, talks about the fact that all of creation is subject to futility, that the creation currently groans, awaiting for its future uh, redemption. And it Romans 8.22 states that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And this imagery of birth pangs is often used in reference to divine uh, judgment and the end times. So what we see in that particular passage when we connect it up with what's happening in the book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ is coming back and he will execute his rightful Title to be king of the earth as the God man, not simply as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. Daniel 7, we see that it is the Son of Man who comes to destroy the kingdoms of man to establish his rightful rule. When we have that title, Son of Man, it also connects us to the fact that he is the Son of David, the greater Son of David, the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant, which we read about in our scripture reading in Psalm 89. So we also tied this last week to various passages in the Mosaic law as a pattern that when redemption occurs, it must be a kinsman who redeems the land and who And so that is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ who as the kinsman redeemer is the one who has paid the price. And so we see the connection developing between the first item of praise and Revelation 4.11 focusing on God as creator and the second item of praise which comes in verse 9 of chapter 5 that the the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because he was slain and has redeemed us to God by his blood. So it is on the, on the focus of these two uh, doctrines, God is creator, Christ is redeemer on which the future resolution of evil depends. And so I, Pointed out last time that as chapter 5 gives us the general uh, scenario, fills in the gaps of the setting in heaven for the uh, handing out of the scroll, chapter 5 then fills in the details. Chapter 4 is mostly setting, a little action with the worship. Uh, chapter 5 is the action of the scroll being presented the search for one who will open the scroll one who is worthy to open the scroll the coming forth of the lamb uh, as though he had been slain and then the taking of the scroll by the lamb setting the stage for the uh, opening of the uh, of the seven seals last time we just focused on this first verse that of uh, the coming of the, the the purpose and meaning significance of the scroll Tying it directly to the fulfillment of the original covenants. That with the covenant, the creation covenant in Genesis 1 and 28, modifications with the Adamic covenant and then the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect, Jesus Christ is going to come as man to fulfill the original creation covenant and cultural mandate to rule over the planet. What God does in human history is always tied to these covenants, these legal documents. And God has so ordered that the way he relates to man is according to these legal contracts or covenants that he has revealed to man. So he just doesn't operate however he could operate and however he might want to operate. He reveals to us exactly how he will operate and what those terms will be. Now we come to the second scene. If you'll note in your, in your Bible, uh, usually this will play out in most of your translations, there are four verses where you have the phrase, and I saw, focusing on the verb to see. And these indicate the four scenes in this particular act. Verse 1 says, And I saw in the right hand of him, who sat on the throne. Verse 2, we have a second vision or second focus. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Verses 2 through 5 describe the, uh, what takes place as a result of the cry of the strong angel, the proclamation of the strong angel. Verse 6, we read, and I looked, and that is our third Act in this particular, or third scene in this particular chapter. Uh, Verses 6 through 10 describe this third focal point in chapter 5, and then in verse 11 we read, Then I looked, I saw, again, same word in the Greek for all uh, four of these particular verses, and that is the final focus on the worship of the angels and the creatures in heaven. As the Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, as the Lord Jesus Christ prepares to open the scroll, so let's look at the second scene. Here we see the unique credentials of the one to enact the title contract to the earth. The focus here is on who is worthy. By verse two, we read that I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who is worthy?" To open the scroll and to loose its seals. The word therefore translated proclaiming is is the present active participle of the Greek word keruso. This is an important word in the New Testament. It refers to the act of a herald in proclaiming something. This is a word that is used of what a pastor is to do in terms of the proclamation of the truth of God's word. In this particular context, it indicates that this strong angel, not an identified angel, this isn't Gabriel, this isn't uh, Michael, this isn't uh, some other angel, simply a powerful angel proclaims this message across the creation. Who is it? that is worthy to open this particular scroll, to enact the title deed for planet Earth. The word for worthy is the Greek word oxios, meaning uh, originally the idea of something with proper weight. It is that that has value or worth, but it came to be used of qualities other than weight. It's a synonym also for the Greek word hikanos which means sufficient, competent, or fit. Who is it that is properly prepared to open the scroll? Who is competent? Who is qualified? Who has the proper credentials to take the scroll? Remember, this has to be a human being because it is to man that God originally gave the title deed. This is one of the other reasons that Jesus Christ, that the Messiah, had to be a God-man. A lot of times people don't understand why Uh, Jesus has to be both fully God and fully man, but both are important. It was understood as in the early church as far back as the uh, Arian controversy by uh, Athanasius that a man had to die as a substitute for mankind. It could not be a God that could die for mankind, but no finite creature could have the value or worth of his death that would pay the penalty for all mankind, so it would also have to be God who would take on true humanity in order to die on the cross as our substitute. This received one of its greatest developments in theology in a work done by uh, Anselm in about the 9th century uh, AD in a work entitled in the Latin Curdeus Homo or Why the God. Man, this became one of the foundational uh, theological documents in history for the understanding of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It may surprise you there are many so-called Christians who do not believe in a substitutionary atonement. They believe that Jesus came uh, to perhaps model God's love for us. This was set forth also in the Middle Ages by a man by the name of Abelard. Later on, you had a, a very uh, famous lawyer in the time of the Reformation by the name of Hugo Grotius who said that Jesus didn't come to die as our substitute. He came as an example of the righteous government of God. And so these other views of the atonement have been part of what we now call liberal theology. They reject the uh, notion that Jesus dies as a literal substitute for mankind, that he actually dies in our place, and yet it is very clear from the scripture that Jesus dies for us. And usually you have one of two Greek prepositions there, either the Greek preposition uh, peri or the Greek preposition huper, both of which... Indicate substitution that someone does something in the place of someone else and this is exactly the picture that we have from the Old Testament uh, sacrifices that the lamb that would be brought for the sacrifice would bear the sin of the individual who brought the lamb as he put his hand upon the lamb it was a symbol of the fact that his sins were being transferred to that lamb and that that lamb would die in the uh, worshippers place and so this picture goes through the entire Bible that the death of the Messiah that the penalty for sin must be accomplished by one who dies as a substitute for uh, someone else so that is the first reason why Jesus had to be the God man but he also has to be the God man the fully human uh, being because he is going to fulfill the work of the original Adam, the first Adam. He will be as the second Adam, the one who will assume the title deed of the planet, and he will rule as the King of the Earth. There was a very uh, well known dispensational book by a, a European dispensationalist named Eric Sauer, which he entitled The King of the Earth. And this was part of his thematic development in, in that particular. In that particular work, he wrote a well-known trilogy, uh, Dawn of Redemption, and I forget what the third one is, but he was, uh, wrote in the 40s and the 50s. So the question here is focusing on who is worthy, who meets these credentials, who is fully human and yet <clears throat> untainted by sin, who is worthy then to enact the title deed, who is worthy to take rulership of planet Earth. Then we come to verse 3 and verse 4 as well because they emphasize the fact that there is no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ who is worthy. There is this search throughout heaven. They look high and low and they use a, a figure of speech here to express this. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. And some people say, well, what's under the earth? How do you fit that in? Uh, spatially? Is that like inside the uh, literal uh, land or the literal uh, earth of the earth itself down into the center core of the earth? Is this some sort of uh, geologic statement? No, this is a figure of speech. It's called a mirrorism. A mirrorism is when you take two opposites and you express them in terms of being able to, say, uh, include the totality of something. For example, in the Psalms you often read that you should meditate on the Word of God day and night. See, these are the two opposites, daytime, nighttime. And by using the opposites, you include the totality of your time, that we should continually be thinking about God's Word. When we begin our study of the Scriptures in Genesis 1-1, the first thing we read is God created the heavens and the earth. There's no word in Hebrew for a universe. So you have the, the two extremes, the heavens and the earth, and that phrase expresses the totality of God's creation. Uh, earlier I used another merism. I used the phrase high and low. See, that's a common idiom that we have. It includes everything. Whatever's high, whatever's low, that includes the totality of something. So here we have an ex, a merism in heaven on earth or under the earth, no matter where you might look in all of God's creation, in the highest heaven, the third heaven, all the way down to the earth, below the earth, wherever you might think about looking, no matter how much you explore creation, there is no creature that is qualified to open the scroll or to look at it. And as a result of this search that is taking place, and we get a sense almost that at least for John as a creature who is observing this scene, that some time goes by. And and it's as if he is observing this search and a certain level of frustration that no one is found who is qualified to take the scroll. And so he bursts out weeping in verse 4. So I wept. Much, And the Greek word here is a word that is often used for the expression of of mourning, when the mourners would just wail uh, in their grief over the loss of someone. And he becomes almost uncontrollable. He is weeping loudly and uh, expressing his grief that there's no one, no one who can open the scroll. Now, why does he respond that way? i want to stop here for just a minute, pause, and think about why John suddenly begins to weep so vociferously. It is because he recognizes that there is an ongoing problem in human history, and that is the problem of suffering, the problem of undeserved suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of injustice and even as the psalmist several times mentions the his frustration how long o lord how long will the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer john recognizes that as as time has gone by there's this ongoing problem of undeserved suffering and and injustice, and that there needs to be a resolution to this ongoing problem of evil, and he knows that that with the opening of the scroll, with the, the the taking of the title deed, that this will bring an end to human history and a final judgment on sin and evil, and all injustice will be made right, and all evil will be corrected, and there will be a resolution to the problem of evil, and he, he realizes all of this, and yet when there is no one found who can take the scroll, he realizes that frustration that, that it's, it's not going to happen yet, and he so desperately sees the need for the end to sin and suffering and sorrow and pain that he begins to weep thinking that it won't happen. And so he is going to be corrected. He says, I wept much because no one was found worthy or qualified or competent or fit to open the scroll. Now, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you will see that it has another phrase in there to open and read the scroll. And the word that is found there that's translated and read, those two words, are not found in either the majority text or the critical text. They're found only in those few manuscripts that made up the Textus Receptus that was the basis for the King James and also the New King James Version. So it has very little uh, attestation in the manuscripts. That is why I have put a line through the phrase and read that is not part of the original should read, I wept much or I wept greatly or intensely because no one was found qualified to open the scroll or to look at it. And then we come to verse 5. This is one of the most dramatic scenes in verse 5 and verse 6. But one of the elders said to me, now we saw in our study in chapter 4 that the elders, are, the 24 elders are representatives from the mass of church-age believers that are resurrected, raptured, and rewarded, and in heaven. We will look at the details for that one more time before we finish this chapter when we get into verses 9 and 10 next time. But for now, we'll just, uh, I'll just establish the principle that these elders represent the church-age believers in heaven. And one of these elders, uh, one of these church-age members says to him, Don't weep. Stop weeping, literally. Stop it. There's no reason to push the panic button here in heaven that sin and evil will not be resolved. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, it is important to note that this is the only place in the entire book of Revelation that the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so we ought to pause and say, why is that image brought to bear in this particular incident? And it is because that imagery of the Lion of Judah is an image of kingly rule, power, and majesty. And this is the focal point here, of the chapter, because the one who is taking the scroll is the one who will enact his title to the earth, his right to rule the earth as its king. So this imagery of a lion reinforces his role as as the one who is uh, qualified to rule, the one who is qualified to reign. The imagery, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has its uh, background in Genesis chapter 49 verses 9 and 10. Those of you who are coming on Tuesday night for our Genesis study, we have just gone through this passage this last uh, Tuesday night where Jacob is prophesying to each of his 12 sons their, their future, indicating what will become of that tribe and what its future role will be in human history. And regarding regarding the tribe of Judah, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? And the point of that rhetorical question is that none is more powerful in the animal kingdom than the lion, so who is going to be more powerful than Judah? And then he goes on to apply the imagery in verse 10 by saying the scepter, that is the emblem of rulership, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. So there would be the, the tribe of Judah would be the tribe from which the uh, kingly line would come. And David, of course, was from the tribe of Judah. Shiloh is a title for the Messiah, a title for uh, the coming one who was promised in the Old Testament. And then it goes on to say, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So we have this imagery from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the lion from the tribe of Judah. It emphasizes one who is strong, one who is fierce, and one who would be a, a ruler who would take control through power it 's unfortunate that, in the time of Jesus' first coming, the Jews were anticipating a king like this that would come with power and would overthrow the Roman Empire. They were expecting the crown before the cross for the image of the lion is the image of the ruler the the uh, potentate, in contrast to the image we 'll see in the next verse that is of the lamb. the lamb is a picture and symbol of Christ's work as redeemer the one who will come to pay the price uh, for our sins as the sacrificial lamb so the Jews of Jesus day expected the crown to come before the cross and as a result of that they misidentified Jesus and rejected him we must recognize that the lion Uh, represents the majestic kingly rule of the Messiah the lamb represents his redemptive work at the first coming the lion represents his violent destruction of the kingdom of man in order to establish his kingdom which is the imagery that we see in Daniel chapter 7 the lamb represents his meek submission to the kingdom of man as he is crucified ...for the sins of the world. The lion represents the king conquering... ...and the lamb represents Satan being conquered. So the imagery here of the lion is a rich imagery of power... ...and that is what we will see uh, in the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second image that we have in verse 5 is that he is of the root of David... This imagery refers to that which is the source of something. Uh, the root is that from which the uh, the plant springs. It represents the origination of the plant. It's a metaphorical term. The root of something is a metaphorical term for its, its origin and relates to promises in the Old Testament. In uh, Isaiah 11, uh, verse 1, and again in verse 10, Isaiah prophesies regarding the Messiah that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. It's a picture as if the plant has been cut back, all that's left are the roots, but yet at the future time there will be new growth that comes out of those roots. And in verse 10 he says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, that is, of Israel. For the Gentiles shall seek him. That's been a major focus in the first few chapters of of Isaiah, that all the nations, all the Gentiles will come to the uh, temple of God, the mountain of God in Jerusalem to worship him in the kingdom of the Messiah. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Jeremiah also referred to the branch imagery in Jeremiah twenty three verse five and again in Jeremiah thirty three verse fifteen. In Jeremiah twenty three verse five we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In Jeremiah thirty three fifteen, Jeremiah writes, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So when we read verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5, when one of the elders says, Do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The phrase has prevailed is a prophetic Uh, past tense it's it's talking about what will happen in the future as if it has already happened because it is so certain and the imagery here is imagery that takes us right back to the Old Testament that this is the Messiah of the tribe of David the one of the tribe of Judah who fulfills the Davidic covenant and we are reminded uh, that he is the one who has uh, (coughs) has had victory that the phrase that is translated there, uh, has prevailed, is the Greek word nikos, the noun, or the verb actually there is nike. He has prevailed, he has conquered, he has had victory, and because of that victory he's qualified to open the scroll. This takes us back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. There he writes, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption... And this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. It is the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross that is our victory over death. Verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, Nikos is the noun, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lion of the Tribe of David, uh, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. He has accomplished the victory on the cross, and that qualifies him to open the scroll to loose its seals. And then we come to the third scene in verse six, and we'll just begin that um, this morning. This is a picture of the Lamb who is slain, but is still standing and we just see the opening description of this scene in verse 6 the action begins in verse 7 so we'll just introduce the scene uh here in verse 6 the lamb is introduced john says and i looked and behold in the midst of the throne this is the scene where the god the father is on the throne of heaven it's surrounded by the emerald rainbow there is the glass, sea of glass or glass-like sea in front of him showing the separation between the creator and the creatures there are all of the myriads of angels around the throne there are the four living creatures there are the 24 elders and he says in the midst of the throne and of the of the four living creatures suddenly this one appears he, there's now a lamb standing as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. The imagery here is, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb. This is John's favorite title for the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Some 29 times we have a mention of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Now, what is interesting, let me skip ahead here, the Lamb, the term for lamb here in the Greek is Arnion. And this is a diminutive term. That means it's talking about a small lamb. This would be almost like a pet lamb. And it is a picture of the fact that at Passover, remember First Corinthians five seven talks about Christ as our Passover. He is the Lamb of God, uh John says in John one uh, twenty nine, that takes away the sin of the world and uh, there we have a different word used for lamb, the word omnos, which is of, a, of the, the normal word that's used for, for Jesus as the lamb in the New Testament. But in the book of Revelation, it's a uh, small lamb emphasizing this contrast between the lion on the one hand and this small uh, domesticated pet lamb on the other hand. It emphasizes the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first advent that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, Philippians chapter 2. And it it also contrasts him to the dragon, Satan, who is the arch enemy of the Lamb in the drama of of the tribulation. So 29 times in the book of Revelation, our Lord is referred to As the lamb. Now, here in this description, he's referred to as the lamb standing. It's a perfect active participle. I think I have it up here. Yes. Perfect active participle simply means to stand. But what's interesting in the Greek construction here is you have the word standing as a perfect participle, and though it had been slain, the the verb for slain is also a perfect participle these indicate completed action so he is standing there it's a completed act he has been slain and the word there for slain is the Greek word spazo which indicates a violent death it indicates being slaughtered or butchered someone who would be murdered violently violently And so we have this picture that this lamb has been slain, it's completed action, but even though uh, it has been slain, it is standing. And we would translate it, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as if it, or though it had been slain, it's not as if in the sense of it's not real, but it's, it's a concessive sense. Though it had already been slain, it is still standing. It's an allusion to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns are a metaphor in Scripture for power. And so this indicates his omnipotence, his power over all things, and thus his power to take over the uh, control and the rulership of planet Earth. And seven eyes is a metaphor for the omniscience of God, but here it also relates to the uh, Holy Spirit. This isn't the only time we've seen this. We saw this same representative of the seven spirits of God in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. It goes back to a phrase in Zechariah 4, 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, But by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 10 it connects this to the seven who rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, Lord, these seven. And so there's a connection there between the Holy Spirit in his full ministry. And that's the idea there of the number seven is it represents fullness, completion, completion perfection so it's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit has a full complete ministry and power in and also ministers in relation to the to the lamb in taking over the rulership of the planet the emphasis in these first six verses is on the Lamb, the one who was slain, the one who died on the cross for our sins. This is what qualifies him to then go uh, to take the scroll, to open it, and to take over rulership of planet Earth. We'll come back next time. We'll look at the opening of the scroll and what happens as a result of the Lamb taking the scroll as there is another outburst of worship and song in the... Uh, um, uh, among the heavenly creatures before the throne of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed Father we thank you for this opportunity to look into these things and to be reminded of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth not without provision as Galatians four four says that he came in the fullness of time a prophecy came regarding his coming began in Genesis chapter 3 continued throughout the Old Testament, focusing on who he would be, what his physical qualifications would be as a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, and that he would be sinless and qualified to go to the cross as our substitute as the Passover lamb for the entire world, the one who would uh, take away the sins of the world. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches that we are all created in God's image and thus we have value and significance. But because of the fall, that image has been corrupted and distorted. But that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins as our Redeemer that we might have eternal life by simply trusting or relying in Him alone. Salvation is not by works. It's not by moral improvement. It's not on the basis of any other religious activity. It is only on the basis of trusting and relying exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ for our eternal life. Now Father, we pray that as we contemplate the things that we have studied today, as we allow our thinking to... uh, Focus on your majesty, on your plan, upon your grace, that we might give you all the glory and honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.